Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 33, titled The End of Ambiguity, wherein we discuss an invented language that aspires above all else to be logical. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid, thank you. How about yourself? I'm great, except for the fact that I have a respiratory infection right now and a very sore throat for the past four days. I'm sorry, a little under the weather, are you? Yes, I'm under the weather. My throat is scratchy and my voice is suffering, but I'm here, I'm talking to you, and I love that we're back. And we're back from quite a milestone, man. Yeah? What's that? I'm sorry, what are you referring to? (laughs) Yeah, the government shut down your offspring. Yeah. I can't believe how wonderful it is to be a father. Yeah, and you've expressed a certain fondness for the child. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I have a few observations. Uh, One, children, when they are this young, they resemble sort of animatronic Disney characters. They don't have the fluid motor control that adults have. And so it's like I'm looking at some character on the It's a Small World After All ride. You know, they they move in this very herky-jerky way. They yeah, look at things they as though they contain the deepest mystery of the universe. Plus, they don't know shit. No, no, they don't. But I discovered something about myself, too, which is that I can't stop making up songs when I am holding, his name is Alexander, we call him Xander. I can't stop myself from just making up little songs to sing to him. And I use words that heretofore were never in my vocabulary, like angelic, precious, adorable. You know, I d- didn't really use those words before, and now I just can't stop using them. <laughs> so I have, a, I have one song, it's, I call it the diaper song, a.k.a. It's Good to Be Dry. Uh, I have a song called <laughs> Everything's A-OK, which has several Aww. verses. Uh, I oh, have a song so that goes, uh, oh, 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 I love this boy. But there's an alternate version that I only sing when it's just me and him because other people tend not to like this version that goes, holy fucking shit, I love this boy. <laughs> That's pretty too. Yeah. That is so pretty. But you know, what's what's so wonderful about this is that uh, heretofore, as you apparently say, uh, y- you have uh, had sort of a... Uh, kind of a dark worldview. And this has just brought out a whole new dimension in Mikey. Well, I would say darkly comic worldview, right? I've never yes, through yes, Yeah, yes. I've never you know not had a sense of humor about the despair and existential <laughs> void that awaits us all. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. Now listen, I have a question for you. What's that? When you invent these songs, do you use English words, or do you sometimes use invented words? <laughs> ah, See where I'm going with this? Thanks for the transition, Bob. Very smooth. 
My pleasure. Today's episode, we're going to talk to Erica Okrent, who several years ago wrote a fantastic book. It's called In the Land of Invented Languages, Esperanto Rockstars, Klingon Poets, Logland Lovers, and the Mad Dreamers Who Tried to Build a Perfect Language. There's one language in particular in the book that I haven't heard her speak much about, and I've heard a number of interviews with her over the years. It's by a particularly mad dreamer who had this ambition that we'll get to. But we might as well just bring her in right now. Erica, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. So uh, I know that in talking about this book, you have spoken a lot about Klingon. Star Trek, of course, has a huge following, and that language has a number of speakers, some of whom I think are even native speakers. You've spoken a lot about Esperanto, but one language that you've written about that you haven't really spoken much about is called Logland, which is short for logical language. Before we talk about it, I want to establish some of the historical context out of which this language grew. Yeah, it's in the, in the build-up to the Second World War when I was all the growth of Soviet and Nazi propaganda got people thinking about the harmful effects of language. You could manipulate people with it. Words could trick your mind. There were a lot of popular books about this idea. One popular one was called The Tyranny of Words, pointing out how we're all sort of manipulated by words in ways that we don't realize, which then translated into these dystopian novels um, where not only could it do harm, but if you lacked certain words for things, then you couldn't even think those thoughts. So, for example, 1984, Newspeak has that idea. You can't think about freedom if you have no term for freedom. There was an Ayn Rand novel, Anthem, where people had couldn't use the word I, and therefore they had no sense of their own individuality. So these ideas were floating around about the harmful effects of language and the way that language could actually control your thinking. Was this really an academic idea, or was it more populistic, the notion that words are themselves corrupting? Well, it was a a general popular notion, but there was an academic view um, characterized mostly by what's known as the Whorf hypothesis now. Benjamin Whorf, who was a linguist, had done um, a lot of research into Native American languages, which operate very differently, and he started formulating some ideas about these very different linguistic structures, the effects they might have on the way you perceive the world. He died before he got to fully develop this theory, but when other people went on to pick it up and run with it, it turned into this more simply stated idea, the language you speak controls the way you think. What if a Navajo and I were in the same place, having essentially the same experience? Under the Whorf hypothesis, our realities are actually different. Uh, Well, it's not that your language prevents you from seeing the world any other way. It locks you into some way of thinking, but that the daily habit of using your language lays down a daily habit of looking at the world. So your default will be a little bit different, but it doesn't mean you're incapable of switching to another way of thinking or understanding what green is if you, if you don't have the word for green. But this theory, is, it's very hard to test because you want to say, okay, does this language affect the way these people think? Well, if you find out, yes, it does, um, how are you to know that it's the language and not the culture? 
because every language is attached to a culture, and this is where uh, where Logland came in to that question. Worf never got to explore it. He died. This left the question to others. Yes, and, and in the 50s, there was a big conference with sociologists and psychologists about the works of Worf, where they brought up some of his papers and ideas, and suddenly this world was buzzing about this idea, the the effect of language on thought, and the problem of how to separate language from culture if you wanted to be able to test it or say anything conclusive about it. And so a sociologist named James Cook Brown got the idea that you could create a language. So if you invented a language, and for him it was a language that embodied the principles of modern logic, because it was invented and artificial, it wasn't attached to a culture, could you take this logical language, teach it to people in a laboratory, and then test whether it made them think more logically? That was going to be the scientific test of the Whorf hypothesis. So I want to talk a little bit about the mechanics of how Logland works. You say, frankly, the thought of trying to capture Logland in a nutshell for you fills me with despair. There is just so much. The language is specified to within an inch of its life. The reference grammar comes to over 600 pages. This doesn't even include a dictionary. I read the whole thing. I swear I did. And I'll tell you, not only do I still not speak Loglan, but I started to lose my ability to comprehend English. (laughs) So give us a sense of how this ostensibly, supremely logical language works. What is it that Brown created? Well, I can give you an example of how this affected my brain as I was doing it. I I was watching some Elmo video with one of my kids, and one of the puppets says, what are the two numbers that come after the number six? And for a moment, I was so confused by this question. What does this puppet mean? What are the two numbers that come after the number six? There are an infinite number of numbers that come after the number six. (laughs) Eventually, I realized it meant seven and eight. But it was the ambiguity, the logical ambiguity in that sentence, which most people don't have a problem with. But when you're in the Logland mindset, you start to see these gaps in logic, the things that are left unspecified by language. So the goals of Logland are to close those gaps. So one of the ways it does that is with respect to structure. You can say a sentence like, I saw the man with the binoculars. That has two readings. Is it me with the binoculars looking at the man, or is it me looking at a man who's holding binoculars? In Logland, you speak words that bracket that sentence for you, so you know which of those two readings are intended. Every time you say a sentence, you have to make sure those ambiguities are are bracketed correctly. It looks on the page kind of like an arithmetic function. Yes, you leave things grouped as they're meant to be grouped, and you don't let the structural ambiguity come through. You've spoken the parenthesis, basically. But it also deals with these words, like in that example I gave you, after. After is ambiguous. Does it mean just after in general, or does it mean consecutively after, six and seven, not just everything after? So those, you have to close those lexical gaps with you know, these words that have precise logical meanings. So there's you know, 25 different ways to say and, depending on 
which kind of logical joining you're doing. There's one and for um, John and Alice carried the piano. If you mean one day John did it and the next day Alice did it, you use one kind of and. If you mean they did it together as a team, you have to use the and that means they created a mass entity together and then carried it together. But that's not the same one you use if you want to say uh, John and Alice are friends. You don't want to say they mass together to form a friend. You want to say the and that means um, considered jointly John and Alice are friends. So you have to keep track of all these subtle variations in the meaning of and, which seems like it should be a pretty simple, straightforward word, um, but logically it isn't. Okay, this, I think, is a good place for us to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of audio information and entertainment on the Internet. You can choose now from more than 150,000 audiobooks. It used to be 100,000. They've since upped their catalog. And you can listen to them on your computer, your smartphone, your tablet. Audible, of course, has a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. If you sign up for a 30-day trial membership, you'll get one free audiobook of your choice. You know, Bob, as a recent father, I've been thinking a lot about the books that I'll recommend to Xander when he's old enough to read. If not first on my list, it's pretty high up there, a book that I'm guessing you've never read because you don't like science fiction, but it was one that I discovered when I was sometime in elementary school because I was reading uh, several box sets of Newbery Medal winners. It's A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. Mm Mm-hmm. All of my kids have read that, and they love it. I, you know, Xander is a precocious child. He's not quite ready for a Wrinkle in Time. <laughs> you know, I would say like maybe nine months. Yeah, nine months, right. Well, he's already typing, so I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic book. It's available unabridged on Audible, narrated, read by Hope Davis, the actress Hope Davis. Oh, I love Hope Davis. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that it begins... It was a dark and stormy night. Nuh-uh. That's how good the book is. And you can listen to it for free if you sign up now at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay, let me read another passage from the book, one that I think hits on the central problem with trying to learn this language. You say, composing a sentence in Logland is like writing a line of computer code. Choose the wrong function, drop a variable, forget to close a parenthesis, and it doesn't work. But how do you know it doesn't work? At least when you write a computer program, you have a way to determine whether you've made a mistake. You hit enter, and the program doesn't do what you wanted it to do. How do you sit down with a 600-page book of grammatical rules and determine whether you followed them correctly? You could say that of any language, right? You can't necessarily know if you're teaching yourself the language, whether you're speaking it correctly, but then you can find a native speaker and you could say, how does this sound? Does this sound grammatical? With this, that's the problem. You you don't have that native speaker. I guess you just have to talk to other Logland lovers and figure out, does this mean what I think it means? Yeah, that makes it incredibly difficult because this preoccupation with correctness is, is very important. Like you said, you don't have native speakers to make their gut judgments, and you don't even have something like with Klingon or Esperanto, a community standard for what's good enough. But good enough isn't good enough (laughs) with Logland. It has to conform to the rules. And that means conversation goes extremely slowly. 
and most of the conversation ends up being about the conversation itself. <laughs> Someone will say a sentence, and then everyone will think, wait a second, should, is that actually the right use of that word? And we'll, we'll all sit around and, and puzzle it out for a few minutes. Oh, dear God, I'd rather go to a <laughs> Renaissance fair. <laughs> well, I love, you use the example in your book, I love how you point out that on one online forum, somebody got angry at somebody else and told them, in Logland, go fuck yourself. And then the rest of the people started debating, did he say that correctly? <laughs> they weren't actually offended. They just wanted to actually, they were like, well, I, did, is that the correct way to say that in Logland? Yes. Yeah, you know, this precision or, or this obsession with precision, I mean, it may be linguistically correct. It, it may also just be pathological. James Cook Brown was sort of James Cook Brown, no? Yeah, he was typical in the in the array of language inventor personalities. There's always a schism. Every invented language that has any kind of success ends up splitting off at some point because you've got people very protective of their creations. And James Cook Brown was extremely territorial. Authoritarian. And even when he had gotten people to join him and work with him and help develop the language... He wanted them to sign legal aficionado agreements, agreeing that they wouldn't do anything without his permission. He didn't want them to take any steps he hadn't approved of, and he ended up, in the end, alienating his supporters to the extent that they split off and formed their own version called Lojban, and it all ended in a, in a big court case <laughs> the Federal Circuit Court decided against Brown having a, a trademark on his language. And now Lojban has continued, and it's where the, where the action is, where the community is now, the offshoot from Brown's original language. And so there are speakers today. I mean, they speak, as you mentioned, slowly, but there are people who certainly spend a great deal of time still studying this language and contributing to it and helping it grow. We don't have necessarily the laboratory conditions that he had hoped for, where you teach this to people in some kind of scientific setting and you test the Worf hypothesis. But we do have, I guess, anecdotal evidence from the people who are using it and using it a lot. So what do they self-report about what Loglan or Lojban, as it's now called, what do they self-report about how or whether it's changed the way they think? Uh, well, one of the speakers told me that um, Logan speakers have a, a prior weirdness that ruins any wharf test. <laughs> so you, you have to already think a certain way to to want to do it in the first place. Um, you know, even the people that already like it and want to do it have enough trouble learning it, much less any, you know, normal people who try to get in a lab and experiment. We should point out that the people who are drawn to it tend to be engineers and mathematicians and people who are already predisposed to, like, logical thinking. Yes, and are attracted to the idea of elimination of ambiguity. I have to say they do amazing things with it. They've translated Alice in Wonderland, um... There was a wedding of a couple in Lojban. They manage much more than you would expect is possible with it. And they say that it does change the way they think in that every time you want to say something, you have to examine your intentions and you have to think about what assumptions you're making. And people like that feeling. One of the participants in one of the meetings that I went to just said, I like how it messes with my head. 
and I can see that attraction. You can translate Alice in Wonderland in Lozban. Can you translate Pushkin? Can you translate uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley? Isn't ambiguity part of what makes language language? Yes. There is a sort of looseness that we need in language in order to do the range of things that we want to do with it. We can make it very precise when we need to, like with legal language, or we can be very ambiguous and vague if we just want to sort of show affinity with each other and talk without really saying anything or formulate ideas as we're speaking. We can do that whole range of stuff with natural languages. People complain a lot about lack of uh, precision in language, the fact that we misunderstand each other all the time, or that we can manipulate with language. We can lie with language. Wouldn't it be better if that wasn't true, if we had something more dependable? But, you know, be careful what you wish for. It, it, I don't think it would be better. I think the fuzzy edges of language are very useful for the way we think. Since the, the whole evolution of these kind of utopian languages is premised on the idea that, that natural languages can be sinister, that they can be used to manipulate, I asked you whether Lojban could translate Pushkin, but more to the point, could it be used to translate Goebbels? Yeah, I think it could be. I think it has, you know, it has enough vocabulary and enough rules for lots of different sentence types that it could be used to translate nearly anything. The more important question is, would that do good or harm? Could Lojban be a tool of, of propaganda, of manipulation? I think any language can be, and it's not the fault of of the language or the type of language it is. It's just one of the things we have in our toolbox as humans. It's time we stop being so hard on language, I think. Words don't manipulate people. People manipulate people. Exactly. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you. Thanks, Erica. Erica Okren is the author of In the Land of Invented Languages, Esperanto Rock Stars, Klingon Poets, Logland Lovers, and the Mad Dreamers, who tried to build a perfect language. Well, gee, Mikey, it was nice to be doing this again. I had to shake some rust off, but uh, it's nice getting back out on the field. Yeah, it is. But uh, unfortunately, I got to get home to Xander, so um, I don't have time for chit-chat anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I can see how this is going to go. I can see how this is going to go. What am I, chopped liver? Well, uh, if you want to write to us and tell us how glad you are that we're back, you can do so at SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. That's SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at Slate.com slash LexiconValley, where you'll see the new Slate redesign, which many of you don't like. I've come to learn through reading the emails, but many of you do. You can follow LexiconValley on Twitter at LexiconValley. Please, by all means, follow us in iTunes, where you can leave a rating and a review. I want to thank Erica Okrent and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yeah. Hopefully, uh, next time I will be in ship shape and have my better voice back. Later, Gator. Hi, I'm Daniel, and I'm going to be teaching you about Lojban. So let's say you wanted to say, how do you say computer in Lojban? 
So you would say, Izoi ga computer ga chefan vemala lojban. The answer would be, Izo skami. The translation is skami. Zo is a lojban word which tells you that the next word is in quotation marks. But it's only for one word. You understand? And likewise, the word zoi in e zoi ga computer ga chefan vemala lojban, that zoi says the next whatever utterance whatever the next thing that's going to be said is non-lojban. And we put ga, ga on the both sides of it to show that it's English because ga comes from glisho. And pa, if we said pa, that comes from ponjo, which means Japanese. So i, zoi, pa, tatoeba, pa, chefan vamala lojban would be, how do you say tatoeba, tatoeba in lojban?